Welcome back to the Welsh History Podcast, episode 140, The Origins of the Tudors. Before we begin today's episode, I just want to briefly discuss the fact that we have moved our provider. We're no longer with Podbean as of this month, being March of 2021. Uh, we are moving to Anchor. So if you are a Podbean subscriber or use the Podbean app to listen to this episode, uh, this will be the last episode that you'll be able to listen to on Podbean. And uh, we would advise that you switch over to uh, anchor.fm forward slash Welsh dash history dash podcast. Or conversely, you can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or any other podcatching service. Uh, again, if you go to the website that I just mentioned, you'll be able to find out where our feed is and be able to follow us there. So just in case that affects you, just so you know, otherwise it probably doesn't, then you're good and you'll still get it just like you would normally. All right, let's get to the episode, shall we? We now return to a more personal narrative as we spend some time focusing in on the meteoric rise of the Tudors of Wales into the Kingdom of England and how this rise of a family of partial Welsh origin caused a sea change for Wales that still resonates to this day. As much, possibly more, it would the world at large. The Tudor line was said to have started as far back as Marchuth Apkinen, Lord of Rus, protector of Rodri Mawr, the 9th century King of Gwyneth. This, like so many things that go along with Welsh history, and especially the Tudors, there is a level of myth about it and possible fiction. The first significant name in the Tudor line, one that we can actually trace, is Ednafed Feichan Apkinrig. Ednafed was a disdain, similar to a seneschal of Gwyneth, under Llewellyn the Great and his son David. In this royal line, he managed the prince's household and would work in place of the king, making him possibly the second most powerful man in Gwyneth. He was also the Lord of Cricketh and the Lord of Brynvanagil, and Chief Justice. He had risen up to that position in part due to his success as a war leader. There's a fairly famous story about him defeating some English nobles and in the process cut off their heads, which were represented on his coat of arms as three heads or three helmets, depending on the time frame. In 1235, Ednafed joined many other knights across the Western world and went on crusade. While little is known about this event, or even what he did while on crusade, or if he even actually went fully on crusade, what we do have a record of is that King Henry III arranged for him to be presented with a silver cup as he passed through London on his way to the Holy Land. At some point, Ednafed's first wife passed away. Unfortunately, there is no consistent knowledge about this lady, and unfortunately we have very little to go on other than the fact that she gave him some children, and other than that there's some conflicting stories as to her name. This in part may be because a lot of the historical importance is placed on the second wife, and of course to our overall story, but it like so many other things, is disappointingly common for women to be ignored by chroniclers of this and many ages later. At some point before he went on crusade, he took a second wife, Gwentlian Ferch Rees, 
one of the daughters of Rhys ap Griffith, the prince of Doithbarth. Gwentlian's mother was Gwentlian Ferch Madog, the daughter of Madog ap Merduth, the last prince of a unified palace. One thing which may have played a part in the marriage between a socially mobile noble and royalty is that Gwentlian Ferch Madog's nephew was Llewellyn the Great himself. You can imagine how this may have reflected on Idnefed. The Tudors, like their cousins, Oanglindur, were married into Welsh nobility and through a number of different noble lines. This gave them a head up on a number of other people. Ednefed's son, Goronwy, served, like his father, in the role of disdain for Prince Llewellyn the Last. He and his brothers had served the crown from an early age and would continue to do so all through their lives. He would serve ten years as disdain and would be involved in a number of negotiations between marcher lords and the Prince of Wales. He also inherited lands in Anglesey, which would be the lands the Tudors would still be in possession of for at least 150 years. The Chronicles of the Princes noted Goronwy in an entry in 1268 when he passed away. They mentioned him by saying, The following year, Gornwy, son of Ednefed, seneschal to the prince, died on the eve of St. Luke the Evangelist, a man excellent in arms, generous with gifts, wise in counsel, loyal in deeds, and pleasant in words. In some ways, he was considered to be the true founder of the Tudor line because of where he settled, which was the family homestead for so long, and was long associated with the Tudor line, going even well past this time. Gornwy's son, Tudor Hen, Tudor the Elder, was very clever and was at least a very able political manipulator, as he worked for kings and princes at will. First against Edward, until the defeat of Llewellyn in 1278, but before his final defeat in 1282, where he then took the Pledge of Loyalty to the English king. He would then run hot and cold against the English, like much of the Welsh nobility during this period who survived, and would consistently flitter through one possible option for king or prince, as the case may be, somehow always maintaining his land each time. He would work for the king in the former Perfedlad territories of eastern Gwynedd, his greatest achievement would not be known in his own lifetime, but his name is where the Tudor dynasty's title comes from. The Tudor line continued to prosper in the 14th century, becoming pillars in the community on Anglesey, respected by their Welsh peers and feared by local Englishmen. When Tudor's grandson got into legal trouble with the murder of an English noble who had been acting on behalf of the Prince of Wales, the English version, in the area, they were able to escape without any sort of punishment and actually kept all their lands, something that would seem unusual in that circumstance. Once again, the Tudors maintained their place in North Wales through successive lines and successive monarchs. As mentioned earlier in past episodes, in 1400, Rhys and Gwillem, two of the Tudor brothers, fought in the Glindor Revolt, first on their own, and then they joined Owen as he fought for Welsh independence. 
They had been loyalists to Richard II and received positions in his service, so it's little wonder why they would fight against Henry IV. They joined their cousin Owen right to the bitter end, and both were captured. Reese was executed in 1412. Willem survived imprisonment but died shortly thereafter, or at least ceased to be noted. The youngest brother who fought with Owen was Merduth ap Tudor, and he was the last of the Tudors that we know of to have joined the rebellion. He had been a bailiff and had worked in a position as Echitor, a person who sells off, and I probably pronounced that wrong, uh, vacated lands to ensure that they were used rather than being kept vacant, and where typically when someone died without heirs or had had their properties seized due to a criminal conviction or for some other reason, a position which was largely held by English people only in Wales, so this is a bit of an unusual step. He was in the role for three years during the reign of Richard II. Meredith last appears on the records during the rebellion in 1405, and some put forward he likely died shortly after that. We have no record of his death, and like so many things, it's what we do have can be only speculated on. He had two children from Margaret Verch David, and one a daughter named Anne. His second child was Owen ap Meredith ap Tudor, someone who will get to know better as Owen Tudor. In the aftermath of the defeat of the last native-born prince, Henry IV also passed away, and the legacy of war and rebellions was then left to his son to try and pick up the pieces. Henry V did what pretty much all English kings in the medieval period seemed to do. He took the war that was being fought in his own lands and then turned around and went to France to fight it there. He won massive success against the French to push his own claims to their throne. To find himself a way to further plant his flag there, he married himself into the current line. In 1422, King Henry V of England, Wales, Ireland, and France, according to his own claims, died of dysentery in the midst of campaigning in France. In his stead, his infant son, Henry VI, was declared king. His uncles would then take the regency in England and France while carrying on the war, which, of course, is now known as the One Hundred Years' War. Henry would only be anointed king officially in 1429 at the ripe age of seven. His mother, Catherine de Valois, was the youngest child of the King Charles of France. She and Henry were married in 1420 in France, and by the time she returned to England, she was carrying Henry VII. Two years later, she was a widow at 21 with a small baby who was the new king. If you're like me and eating healthy is a bit of a problem, let me bend your ear a little bit to eat stress-free this spring with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including popular options like Calorie Smart, Kato, Protein Plus, or Vegan and Veggies. Also, discover more than 60 add-ons every week, like breakfast, on-the-go lunch, snacks, and beverages to help you stay fueled and feel good all day long. What are you waiting for? Get started today and fuel up for your springtime goals. Get chef-prepared meals on the table in two minutes with Factors ready-to-eat meals. 
so you can get back to doing what you love this spring. Also, if you're looking for gourmet meals, try meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, truffle butter, broccolini, and asparagus. We're celebrating Earth Day all month long. Look out for the Earth Month Eats badge on the menu for our lowest carbon footprint meals. Head to factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 and use the code welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first month plus 20% off your next month. That's code welshhistorypod50 at factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates. Instead, we follow in the footsteps of national heroes, kings, or ordinary people who lived and breathed the moments that shaped our world. We're not hemmed in by eras, borders, or religions. Instead, we seek out the tales of those who defied the odds and fought passionately for their beliefs. Whether they're right or wrong is up to you to decide. From Vercingetorix's doomed rebellion against Rome, to Osceola's unshakable war against the USA, all the way up to the inspiring Sobibor concentration camp uprising in World War II, each episode is an immersive listening experience, blending music and sound effects to really draw you into the story. Our episodes go for about 45 minutes, making them perfect for your commute, and are crafted using a wealth of historical sources which I list on our website if you want to learn more. I'm the host, Elliot Gates, and I'm thrilled to have you joining me as we uncover history's hidden gems and illuminate the faded pages of our past. Look out for the Anthology of Heroes podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from. Around all of these various movements came a young Welshman who had entered the service of the royal household, a young man from the old Welsh family who had recently been disinherited as his family lands were seized due to his father and uncle's rebellion with Owen Glyndwr. He was a landless gentry looking to make a name for himself and maybe, hopefully, rebuild his family legacy. Owen Meredith Tudor, who we met earlier, joined the retinue of Sir Walter Hungford, the first Baron Hungford, the steward of the king's household, somewhere around 1421. Owen would come into that household and, as part of his duties, would serve the new queen in capacities which were even now in some dispute. Anything from a taster to working for various levels as a servant. And like so much of this, it's disputed as to what is and isn't accurate. This, of course, is like so many other nobles in Wales in the post-Glindur uprising. They would try and get out of Wales, if possible, to make their fortune. So many of them ended up working for the crown, working at court, working as a part of the English monarchy, a monarchy that up until recently they were fighting. This, of course, would allow him to move up the social classes and make his life better, something he would be very unlikely to be able to do in Wales due to his past name and the fact that most of the positions at this stage were still under the control of the English. The irony here, of course, is in a role that he would never be able to get if he was in Wales, 
he is able to migrate into in the English court and somehow avoid the stigma that seemed to follow most Welsh nobility as they tried to move up and try to claim titles of importance. Within his early time of working with the Queen, of course, she had been widowed. Catherine was around the same age as Owen at the time, and rumors abounded around her in the aftermath of the death of Henry V. She wanted to help run her son's regency, and none of Henry V's family wanted that. She was, in effect, a powerless former French princess who was now the dowager queen and a placeholder until the king could reach a politically convenient age and be married off. It was during all of this time that she is suggested to have started a relationship with Edmund Beaufort. This relationship is only speculated on. Nobody knows for sure that it happened, but rumors abounded that she'd been involved with him sometime around 1427, Edmund being roughly 21 years old and Catherine being 26. This was possibly a catalyst for an unusual parliamentary statute which was passed that year, which expressly forbid the remarriage of any dowager queen without the consent of the king. This was described by the 17th century writer Edward Coke, who said of the former act that it stated that no man should contract with or marry himself to any queen of England without special license or assent of the king on pain of losing all his goods and lands. With this law, considering the king was still far too young to make any of these choices, Edmund Beaufort could not marry the Dowager Queen at this point or at any point in the near future. Not if he wanted to hold on to his possessions, at least, and certainly the ambitious noble would not have wanted to lose them. A theory which has become popular, in, especially in recent times, is that Henry VII's father, Edmund, was in fact the son of Edmund Beaufort and not Owen Tudor, thus casting the entire Tudor myth as being just that. This idea that he was of Welsh ancestry now resides in falsehood as a child of a bastard who was born out of wedlock and, of course, to someone who did not marry that woman, thus never legitimizing him, if that was to be the case. Now, of course, this is historical speculation. There is very little to, to this argument. A lot of what I've seen seems to center around uh, very specific items which are at best not even mildly smoking guns just the fact that his name was Edmund and the fact that he had a coat of arms which looks somewhat similar to Beaufort's but the reality of it is is that his coat of arms may have been given to him by his his uh, stepbrother the king of England when they were reconciled and at a time when he considered him as a brother and had possibly nothing to do with Beaufort. As well, the name Edmund is not uncommon, and Beaufort was his godfather, so that may have something to do with it. So there are rumors, there are thoughts, there are ideas, there are suggestions, but there is no evidence, and there's nothing 
substantial enough to pin it down. And even if you could, it would be very difficult at best. But the suggestion, of course, being is that then she got herself attached to Owen Tudor in part to, I guess, use old parlance, make herself an honest woman. And that is the argument. Now, again, we don't know. And what we do know is that some point after 1422 and before 1430, a love affair was started between the former Queen of England and her servant, Owen Tudor. That relationship produced children, which it became obvious to the Regency Council fairly afterwards what had gone on. While the Queen lived, no one would interfere with Owen, and no one would bother the Queen. As long as she was alive, the Council couldn't intervene. However, with the Queen dead in 1437, just seven years later, and now Owen with a number of children and no mother for them, and now a hornet's nest of angry Englishmen to deal with, it was obvious that his troubles were just beginning. And yet, in that trouble, the Tudor name grows and grows and grows. Edmund and Jasper, the two names that will become very well known as we go through the next few months talking about the Tudors, are significant people in this discussion, and we will certainly talk quite a lot about both of them, especially Jasper, who plays a role right up until the youth of Henry VIII, so he will be someone of great importance to the both the Welsh population and to the upbringing of his nephew, Henry VII. And all of this will have massive repercussions, both in England and, of course, in Wales. And as we said earlier, eventually worldwide. Keep in mind that the Tudor period is the start of the exploration period of Europe. It comes very quickly after the ascension of Henry VII to the throne that Columbus... Uh, reaches Hispaniola in the Americas and the colonization of the Americas begins in the Tudor period. So there is a great deal of influence there, but for Wales there will have direct consequences as Henry VIII will unify the former principality with the rest of England. But all of that's still to come, still in the future, and we'll look at it as we get closer to that point and uh, until then, thank you for listening. Thank you for taking the time to uh, listen to this podcast, to continue to follow everything that's going on with it. And I appreciate that. I really appreciate my patrons, especially over the last few months as you guys have continued to join the patron community and continue to be a part of it. I apologize in advance that there isn't loads of stuff there it's it's something i keep meaning to do and keep forgetting about or keep getting very occupied with other things so i haven't been able to do as much as i would like it is something i will continue to try and add things to 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 fill out some details and try and give you guys a little bit of extra content occasionally um but i appreciate it because it does help me finance the purchases that I have to make for this podcast and certainly helps keep this podcast lights on and thank you to everybody no matter whether you listen whether you donate 
anything. You guys are fabulous, and I really appreciate you being a part of this. Uh, until next time, you can always reach me at the Welsh History Podcast at gmail.com or on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Welsh History Podcast or on Twitter at Welsh History Pod. And certainly any comments, questions, or concerns you might have, certainly bring them up there. And I will try my best to respond if I can. And uh, I do try and generally reach out to people fairly quickly. Until next time, everyone, take care. Have a great day. I hope you have a wonderful week. Goodbye. This has been a Distractions Media production. For more information, you can check out everything we do at distractionsmedia.com. History is the greatest adventure story. But does it ever leave you wondering what the women were doing all that time? This is Lori from the Her Half of History podcast, and the answer is that some women were seizing power, or escaping slavery, or spying for their country, or creating artistic masterpieces, while countless others were doing the laundry, getting married, and wondering why their clothes don't have more pockets. If you would like to hear the stories of women doing all of those things, check out Her Half of History at herhalfofhistory.com or wherever you get your podcasts.